Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, with a regular guest, Professor Rick Geddes of Cornell University. We've all learned so much about infrastructure, infrastructure bills, and the right way to do infrastructure in today's world from Professor Geddes. Today, we're going to talk about the United States Post Office. This is really a fascinating topic that has its origins back with the founding of the country the way it was a cabinet-level position, how it transitioned through congressional management to the state that it's in today, and where it might go in the future. So, Professor Geddes, it's an honor and a privilege to have you back on the show today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me, Rich. Good to be here. Let's just dive right into this. Maybe is there a thumbnail about the history of the post office? How was it established? Why was it so important to the country? And I know we've had technology changes from the Pony Express to the telegraph system to what we're dealing with today, but maybe a little bit on the history kind of to set the table. Sure. Sure thing, Rich. It's actually a very interesting history. Uh, The post office uh, in this country actually predates the United States. So, so you have to go back to the, to the time of the colonies. And the way, the fastest way of communicating in those days was by horse post. And that's where the term post office comes from. People who live in the East know the Boston Post Road. They know the Post House Restaurant in New York. So there's, there's this idea of a post, which is actually in the Constitution. Congress shall have the power to create post offices and post roads. Why was that? It was because what you had was a horse and a rider with a bag, and the bag contained written letters. And um, the rider would go as fast, probably a he, the rider would go fast as he could on the horse to the next post and hand the bag of, of letters over to the next rider with a fresh horse and a fresh rider to go to the next post. So it was a series of posts that would quickly communicate these letters. Now, this was not sending holiday cards in those days. This was the way that military um, commanders would communicate with one another uh, by fast horses. And the British, in fact, uh, it's a very interesting history as to how it became a monopoly. Uh, The British, when they were concerned about the restive colonies, one of the first things they did was control the horse post because they could look from... Uh, for letters uh, coming from um, colonists who, you know, were revolutionaries, right, and and uh, were considered subversive letters ag- against the crown. So the monopoly, uh, government monopoly on the post, goes back to before the founding of the United States, and was you know this power of Congress to do that was not just for fun; it was very much. Uh, for, for communications in what we would call national security <laughs> today. So if the British were you know, looking, trying to intercept the mail to get messages, this notion about the government looking at our communications predated our United <laughs> States Congress. It was, so Richard, it was, it was to look for treasonous letters. And 
you know, and to, to, to search. And so, so the British, you know, very well understood that they needed to control communications, rapid communications in those days. And there, there was no telephone, you know, it's hard for young people to understand. There was no internet. It was, it was strictly, uh, you know, this, this was the fastest way to, to get a letter from one point to another. Everything was written. Communications was by horse post. And so, um, you know, the, the British controlled that. And of course the, the early, uh, you know, uh, colonists uh, who wanted to form an independent country realized that they had, you know, they had to have secure communication. So there was a battle, you know, about communications uh, in the, in those early days. And so, so the United States, you know, when it was formed, uh, kept that sort of mentality and it ends up in the constitution, giving Congress this power uh, to create post offices and post roads, right? So infrastructure, early in those days was to facilitate this communication by horse post. And so, you know, it just continued in the history of that, Rich, is very interesting. Uh, there's a great book by Richard Johns called De- um, uh, Delivering the News, uh, Spreading the News, sorry. And the idea of the early post, which continued obviously after the founding of the country, was to, to facilitate these communications, but it was really newspapers, so the idea was a, what we call in economics a cross-subsidy, meaning that the delivery of letters within eastern cities, which was the dense population in those days, that was priced up in order to give the, po- the early post office the resources it needed to deliver mainly newspapers to the frontier. And the idea of that was to make these frontier states, you know, which of course was made, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky perhaps in those days, to make them feel part of the union. It really was to bring the nation together, right, to knit the nation together in the early days so that these other states didn't feel isolated. But the way they, they tried to make them feel as part of the union was, was to tell them the news. And, you know, it, it, we kept that, that notion of binding the nation together through the post over the years. And it's the government continued continued that monopoly, Rich. The private express statutes were from 1845. 1845, right, was was the kind of the, the uh, legal basis of the modern uh, monopoly, which is actually two monopolies. Yes. And then I'll stop. One is over the delivery of anything defined as a letter. That's within certain height and weight limits, but also over your mailbox. I don't know if you, know, you have a mailbox. Yeah. There's part of the 1845, uh, maybe dates back that far, is that you're not you're not supposed to put any non-official mail in a mailbox that's not, you know, stamped and canceled stamp. And so, so there's actually two monopolies uh, there, and that goes way back in, in the po- post office history. You know, what's really fascinating about this, we're talking about the transfer of information. We're talking about trying to unify the nation. And what are we trying to do today? We're trying to unify the nation. We're trying to transfer information. We're trying to speed communication. Professor, at what point was the postmaster general made a cabinet level position? And why did they do that? What what enabled that? Yeah. So, Rich, that's also a very interesting history. The post office uh, lasted until July of 1971, 
when the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970 kicked in. And so you have to go back to the 1960s. So this basically because of, and it was really this, you know, for lack of a better term, national security idea and binding the nation together through written document delivery that lasted into the 20th century. And the, the post, it's still called the Postmaster General, you know, uh, sort of sort of speaking to the, the military kind of view of it, was a cabinet level, right, just, just like, uh, you know, the Secretary of Transportation or Secretary of Defense uh, today. And it, it, the post office received a, a line item allocation from Congress to keep it going. It, it, it did not break even, right? It did not cover its costs, but it was considered, you know, to be this crucial uh, element. Now, what happened was that became, that became very inefficient, right? It, it became bureaucratic. The local postmaster was a patronage position that a politician could give, you know, give out when he or she was mm-hmm. elected, could give out these, and they were good jobs. My, mm-hmm. I remember oh, gra- yeah. my grandfather's talking about what a good job it was to be a, a local postmaster. You basically had lifetime tenure, good pay, and so on. And it was patronage. And it, it was very much, um, I guess, the structure of it became politicized, but along with that, it became very inefficient. So, Rich, I think it was in 1966, the um, holiday season. So the post, post postal service today, post office then, is very much subject to peak demand. During the holidays, there's enormous demand, demand, particularly in those days, to send cards and letters, packages through the mail during the holiday season. And in 1966, the central post office in Chicago collapsed, meaning that the mail it was unable to sort through all the mail, cards, letters, packages that were coming in, and it just and there there were train loads coming into the sorting center in Chicago, and they could not handle it. And I think it was President Johnson basically um, sent in the National Guard. I mean, they literally sent in, you know, guardsmen to help sort through the mail so that they could get in. And they said, uh, the president said, this cannot continue. We, we can never have another crisis like we had in Chicago in 66 with the mail. So I'm appointing, uh, appointing a commission, Rich, which in my circles is kind of a famous commission. Um, it's called the Capel Commission. Mm-hmm. I still have the final report of the Capel Commission on my, and my bookshelf here at Cornell. It was a big deal. They they made big recommendations to uh, the president and Congress about reform. And basically they said, look, this should be um, treated differently. We should think about the post office more as a public utility. Okay, now these people, a lot of them were coming out of an AT&T, you know, kind of a background. So it's not surprising they they thought about it as a utility. And they said it needs to break even. It should be an independent agency within the federal government, not a cabinet level position. Right. Independent agency, break even, subject to basic utility principles. And that's what Congress did in the 1970 Act. They pretty much followed the recommendations of the Capitol Commission. And that's how we got the modern postal service. 
So you'll note, Rich, it's no, post office is an anachronistic name. The, the name is the United States Postal Service. It came into um, being on July 1st of 1971. And that's, you know, the idea is more commercial focused with standard public utility pricing principles about the setting of rates. It still has those monopolies. It's still a state-owned enterprise. Some people think it's private. It's not private. It's a state-owned enterprise. But it was supposed to operate, Rich, in this more commercial fashion. In preparation, now this was, you wrote this some time ago. Some time ago, yeah. Long time. But it's so relevant for today. And by the way, anybody that wants to, to this book called Saving the Mail, I'd highly recommend it. Thank you. It is a great report. It includes Dr. Getty's opinion, but also highly vetted. So I think it's a very trustworthy piece of writing. And the way you describe the the players, the the taxpayers who were kind of the subsidizers or the providers of equity, the mailers, you know, the people that were sending stuff, the rate payers, mm -hmm. and then the, the unions. So you have, this is again, my understanding from your book was you want to tell the Postal Service to break even, but you've got lobbyists that are from the mailers that are saying, no, 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 you can't raise rates. And you have right. lobbyists from the unions that are saying, no, no, we're going to keep pushing costs up. And there's not really a big voice for the taxpayers that ultimately have to subsidize it. Right. I'm a little unclear how that tied into Chicago, other than the the structure didn't allow capital improvements into the facility. And that's when the volume of mail just drove it to its knees. So, Rich, there was a lot of discussion, if you read the Capital Commission report, about operating it in a business-like fashion. Yes. Right? And, and it, it, was, it was very, it runs like a thread through the commission report. It's supposed to be a, a business, you know, business principles. And if you think about that era, right, it's 1970, it was this very managerial notion that we could use modern managerial methods and scientific, you know, management, and we would be able to, you know, improve, improve the operation of the post office when it became the postal service. So a big focus on efficiency, right, and all, and all of those things. And I, I, I think over time, Rich, maybe if I were to write that book uh, today, I, I would write, uh, write it with a different tone. Because over the years, I've become very, um, I, I, even beyond sympathetic, like, like um, admiring of postal management, that they've been able to operate this thing, given the constraints that Congress places on them. Not only the constraints, but the requirement for universal service. And, I, and yes. I, I don't think anybody would dispute that we need to be able to reach every address in America and the America territories. And, and also, I understand we're a hub of the world. So everybody wants that universal access. And there's a pushback against making it you know, more expensive to send something to the interior of Alaska versus sending it into you know, downtown Cleveland, for example. Right. People all want it to be the same thing. So with those two monopolies that you spoke about, with this demand for universal service, with the ratepayers saying, let's not add any more revenue and the big cost in the unions pushing the cost higher, how the heck did they manage and where do we stand today? <laughs> so, Rich, I think that's a great untold story in this country. I've become I mean, they're, they're basically Congress is asking them to do the impossible. 
right? Six day a week delivery. Keep in mind that the post service, uh, we all call it the universal service obligation. And that's roughly, it's not really defined in statute. It's more of a rough definition of basically every address six days a week. Now, if you go around the, the world to most countries, they do not have Saturday delivery. So that includes Saturday in the United States, right? And I mean, there's a few weird addresses, as you suggest, like people who live in the outback or whatever in Alaska where there's no roads and they don't fly the mail in, you know, six days a week. But they basically hit every address, you know, six day a week with a physical delivery and they have to break even. That's in the statute. And if you look at the data, the Postal Service has done a pretty good job, you know, until recently, until the recent years of, of meeting, you know, meeting its mandate. And, you know, they try to, they try to do it in a, in a timely fashion. And so, so, and, and meanwhile, these, all these pressure groups that you're talking about, they're big mailers. Uh, they're not, it's not grandma and grandpa, you know, mailing cards and letters anymore. They're big commercial mailers, mailing catalogs, advertisements for credit card. Just look at your own mail stream yeah. and you'll get an idea of this, right? And so there's a pressure, a big pressure to keep rates down, you know, because of that. And of course, as you suggest, there's two pretty strong unions, the American Postal APWU, Postal Workers Union, and the National Association of Letter Carriers. And the letter carriers are a bit more contract on, you know, on the rural routes while the APWU are sorting centers and so forth. But, you know, they do have, they do face, the postal management faces these pressures. And I think, you know, in in light of the... (laughs) constraints, you know, that Congress has put on them over the years. Somebody should write a book now saying they've done an amazing job. But now guess what? This story goes back to the Romans. Technology has caught up with them. Someone should write a book and perhaps somebody on this show and say it would not be me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, something should somebody should do a salute. (laughs) I used to be very critical of postal management. But now I've, I've come to the conclusion, if I've looked at things a little more holistically, that they've done an incredible job given the almost impossible constraints that they that they face, Rich. And then you put you put communications technological change on top of that. Mm-hmm. So we all know email, text, you know, just cell phones being ubiquitous. During my business career, facsimile machines came into being, became ubiquitous, and became outmoded. Yeah. And that replaced certain parts of the mail. Yeah. Then we have, of course, email, and you can send PDFs. And I don't know exactly where the legal structures are now, but more and more things I'm doing on electronic signatures, DocuSign and the like. And so they don't, it went from, you had to mail me a document that I signed and mailed back to you sent me a a FedEx that I signed and sent back to you sent me a PDF that I printed and signed and scanned and sent (laughs) back to now you just send me a place to sign. And all of that is outside of this infrastructure. It's a substitute. I can't quantify it, but it just seems to me, and I know I'm a technology based person that we still need to deliver physical things by the mail, even though like I'm probably like most people, my use of the mail has dropped. But, you know, the the Postal Service has a service now 
that I get a email every day that says, here's what's coming in your mail. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, people should sign so, up for that USPS.gov and, you know, sign. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. So I'm getting to a question here. The question is, how important is the Postal Service in a 2021? We blasted a major reform 50 years ago at a point when things were breaking down. Mm-hmm. Might we be looking at today, 50 years from now, given all these changes? Yeah. So, so again, maybe I'll back up a little bit in the in the uh, economic history of it, if you will. What you said is true. You and I, you know, we remember the introduction of the fax machine. And yeah. That being a revolution is somebody could be in India, you know, and they could fax you a letter and it would come out in your, you know, that was an astounding thing, right? Right. But there's a very interesting research that shows that the threat to postal volumes actually predates that. Rich, it was the telephone. There's no surprise, right? You make your telephones ubiquitous. You know, we're very fortunate in the United States to have landline telephones, you know, very early on. But of course, it's a substitute for sending a letter. You either pick up the phone and call somebody or you write them a letter. There's a research paper that shows that, that you know, the telephones really had had an impact. But of course, now it's it's that, you know, exponentially, right? The the volume of first class mail. So so it's useful to talk about the mail classes here at this point because first class is what most people think of when they think of a card or a letter. Yeah. So you send a holiday card, you put a stamp on it, you put it in the mail slot. That is going to go first class. The other big class is standard mail, and that's more advertising, right? So if you get you get mail that's a catalog or it's an advertisement for a credit card or whatever it is, that often goes by standard. Now, the importance of that, Rich, is standard mail, is the, the Postal Service discounts the mail because the big mailers often do preparation. They pre-sort the mail. So the mail is actually sorted often down to the carrier route. So the carrier just has it in the right order. And they also do something called drop shipping, where they'll put put those big, you know, deliveries farther down into the mail stream. The Postal Service gives discounts to the mailer for that that sort of work, the preparation of the mail. The flip side of that is, of course, they don't make as much money off standard mail as they do first class. The other thing, of course, is parcel post. To your point... Right. People know a lot of uh, online shipping. And of course, the covid, you know, shutdown increased uh, purchases online. Some of that, a lot of that goes by parcel post, although, Mm -hmm. of course, it could go by UPS or FedEx or whatever it is. But parcel post is important. Those are some of the main mail classes. There's some other mail classes. Now, this is important, Rich, because historically the post Postal Service made the most money off first-class mail. So most of their profits, right? It was kind of hard to estimate their profits, but most of their profits came from first-class. But all the stuff you're talking about, email, texting, you know, all these substitute ways of communicating was eating away at first-class mail volume. It peaked in 2001, right? That's their, Keep in mind, their most profitable class peaks in 2001. Down, I'd have to look at the recent numbers, but I think it's down by about 40% since then. So, so you can see it's like this pincer movement for the for the post, Postal Service because they have to maintain this high, co- high fixed cost network to meet the universal service obligation. Delivery to basically every address six days a week in the face of their most profitable mail class just being hammered 
by electronic uh, communications, right? And so, so you know, the result of that is, of course, the multi-billion-dollar losses we've seen. You know, nine, ten, eleven billion dollars of losses per year in the most recent years. So, I want to get to your point, Rich. It's an old story. Technological change, you know, disrupts. Uh, incumbent industries. Yeah. I, I just finished a trip on Historic Route 66 and yeah. gas stations, which were part of the infrastructure, which were no longer needed, have gone to sea. Okay. They're just, they're abandoned yeah. and, and, and nobody's spending any money on them. Mm-hmm. If the gas station was the post office, it would be, oh, even though no customers are stopping, you have to stay open because maybe one customer would come. So mm-hmm. I have to, the post office has to maintain delivery capability to remote parts of the country, even if maybe two letters or two first class yeah. pieces of mail go there every year. Is that a good parallel, do you think? Yeah. I mean, sure, sure. It's just maintaining a network, right? A fixed cost network in the face of declining demand. Yes. And that's that's the economics of it. Wow. But as you know, as opposed to gas stations where Exxon or whoever is free to close gas stations, the Postal Service cannot just close, you know, post offices. It, be, it becomes very um, political, you know, to say the least uh, when that happens. And, and so so you can see see what it is there as, as opposed to private entities. They're very much in a, facing a political world you know, when they try to right size. So, so, you know, but let me get to your point that I want to say that it's still important to appreciate the value of their network. So if you think that, that we all know the little postal trucks that go, you know, around, around the neighborhoods uh, six times a week, you know, that's one of the only, it's called the last mile. We call it the last mile. It's one of the only things in society that really goes the last mile of delivery to each address. Right. And so there's with with uh, uh, Internet purchases increasing, there's still demand for physical document delivery. Right. You know, there's there's a number of reasons to have that. But what has to happen, of course, is uh, a reform. Right. There needs to be changes in light of declining demand uh, for first class mail. And I'm happy to get into, you know, uh, what's many other countries have done because yes. you know, the Europeans recognized this 20 years ago. They said, look, there's this thing called email. There's the internet, you know, our post offices, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, the Dutch post or the German post or the French post or Royal mail, you know, on down the line recognized that they were going to have to adjust to this new communications marketplace reality. And they did. Right. It's it's the United States is kind of unique in being a major uh, economy that has not yet reformed its post. Basically, we're living under the same laws, Rich, as 1970. Right. And you and I know communications has changed a lot. I think our, our viewers and our listeners would like to understand where can we go from here? And I thought in the book you had some intriguing concepts that, frankly, I hadn't thought about. Something called a transferable residual claim. Like, you know, if it moves to a different structure, who really has claim on the value that's been built up? I don't know if it's still true, but at the time of the publishing of the book, that rural rural routes and urban routes cost about 
the same. Then there were some parallels with some other types of networks like power grids and telephone systems and things. Then you kind of tied it off with what other countries are doing. So maybe just talk to our audience a little bit about what might be a better structure and and what would it take to get there? Yeah, so that's great, Rich. I mean, and I think there's um, certainly uh, a lot has changed since that book was written. Uh, mainly in terms of reforms, you know, around the world. So there's, there's a number of things. I mean, I think the issue here is my, as our discussion kind of indicates, really lies with Congress, right? It's it's not the Postal Service's fault, you know, that, that we're in this situation. It's Congress. Congress needs to act. So what Congress should do, there's, there's a bunch of thing, reforms that could be undertaken. One would be to redefine the universal service obligation in light of the market reality, okay? Mm-hmm. And the market reality is that the nature of the mail stream has changed. It's mainly commercial material, right? And that's fine. You know, there's no problem. But do we really need to have it defined as six days per week to basically every address? So some of us, myself included, have suggested maybe th- three days a week. Now, that's a minimum. The Postal postal Service could do more if it wants, but the minimum would be, say, month, the lightest mail day of the week is actually Tuesday, right? So maybe we could just have delivery Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, right? That would be the universal service obligation. That would be step one. Step two is that Congress should pay for it. In other words, if, if, these, if it loses money to meet the universal service obligation, Congress just shouldn't tell the Postal Service, hey, you guys do the best you can and meet the, meet, break even and meet the USO in the face of declining demand. We should say, here's here's the new de- definition in statute of the universal service obligation. And if you guys lose money meeting this, we are going to give you a, a subsidy. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to make the subsidy transparent. So, Rich, that's one of my big things is the transparency of the subsidy, the actual dollar amount. And then at the same time, free it up. And by free it up, I mean commercial freedom. And this, I could go around the world and tell you Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, you know, recently freed up its post, you know, and basically get, uh, get rid of the monopolies, right? Allow it to compete. But on the flip side, give it more, give the managers more flexibility to run it like a regular business. And that means uh, introduce new products. It means more flexibility on delivery standards, a whole sort of set of managerial decisions that almost every, you know, all of their competitors uh, have to make subject to this universal service obligation. And then the other thing that, that I, I think I talk about in the book, Rich, is, is a, a misunderstood term called corporatization. And that means just adopt private corporate law. This is what New Zealand did. And basically, the, the Postal Service does not have a board of directors. It has, the, it has a board of governors. Right. And it's a political it's their political appointees. But what I would like to see is a board of directors that actually has a fiduciary duty to a shareholder, even if there's one shareholder, which could be the Treasury or as they say in Canada, you know, the crown. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a crown corporation. The corporation exists. But, you know, there's a single shareholder, which is the federal government. But the, the point is that the board would actually have a fiduciary duty and you get into, you know, corporate law about. And what we're trying to do is really make the vision of the Capital Commission real in the sense that have back to the 60s, basically have the 
uh, board of, of, of directors of the Postal Service really have this business mentality. And of course, Rich, that involves adopting new technologies for uh, mail sortation and, and everything else. So, so this, I'm just borrowing what a lot of other countries around the world have done. And it's been enough years that we can assess, you know, the, the success of that. So just basically free it up, define the USO in the light of modern market realities is just say three days a week. But instead of, you know, sort of forcing the postal service to lose money, which they're already losing money, but make, make that subsidy clear. Right. Make make it transparent. And then they, they would become more efficient. I, I like the framework and it's moved to a competitive model with an obligation for the universal service obligation and have Congress pay for that. We, the taxpayers, because it's a vital service. And of course, what we're seeing today is that during times of COVID, the mail service got more important as people stayed home yeah. and ordered more things online and getting that last mile. Dr. Goodis, you've been, again, incredibly generous with your time. And every time I talk to you, my appetite to learn more is whetted. <laughs> Thank you. If I was younger, I think I'd move to Ithaca and try to sign up for <laughs> one of your classes. And Thank you. If you see somebody that kind of looks like me sneaking into the back still, row, still can. It's, it's not it's me. never too late. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> but as we wrap up here, what are some of the things that we didn't cover and maybe what would be some of the best and worst policies that we could implement? And maybe if you kind of hit on those three things as well as any other final closing thoughts you might have. Yeah. So Rich, I mean, I, th I think the worst policy would just be to continue the, the, the postal service the way it is, right? Because it's, lo it's, it's losing money, billions of dollars every year. That would be scandalous in, in any country, you know, that didn't have the economic, um, might of the United States. I mean, the, most countries just couldn't sustain the losses. You know, I heard a member of Congress uh, asked one time, why we, why don't we reform the Postal Service? And he said, it's because we're too rich. We can, we can just afford, you know, billions of dollars of losses, but that's not in anybody's interest. It's not the workers. People think you're protected, but, but the workers don't want to uh, be in this declining, you know, inefficient, criticized uh, entity. I mean, you know, I, it's not good for them if they face a collapse, you know, of, of the Postal Service. Um, it's uh, and even the mailers, I think, would benefit from reform because maybe better tracking services, faster delivery, you know, they would benefit from efficiencies as well as, and I know that management, management would like to have the freedom and the flexibility to operate it like a real business, right? And so I think one of the worst things we could do, Rich, is, is just continue in this way where, where it's, it's just this long, slow decline without any policy response to the market realities that we're seeing in the communications world, where communications costs have, have, have decreased enormously, uh, you know, since 1970. And there's all these new, new forms so that you know the the nature of the mail stream has changed a lot, uh, and we need to we need to adjust to that. So I think that would that would be one, you know, one of the biggest risks. And the, the the beauty of things today, Rich, is we don't have to speculate on what would happen. We can look to Europe, we can look to South America, we can look to Australia, we can look to New Zealand. 
you know, we can look to, uh, all around the world really and see how countries are reforming their posts. You know, so I think I think that the potential and in some sense, I have to say, Rich, to honor the tradition of the post office, which was a core part of U.S. culture, you know, for centuries. Right. And to now have it, you know, uh, just degrade, frankly, in this way, I think is almost tragic. So I think one of the worst things we could do is just to go along, uh, you know, with what, what we have today, this long, slow decline you know, and instead uh, free it up and use some basic, you know, basic market principles uh, that'll, that'll make it everybody benefit from it. That all makes sense to me and listeners and viewers of The Common Bridge. You've been taken on a journey from the horse post that predated the formation of the country to a vision for the future so that we can deliver the mail, get our passports and all the other services that we get from the United States Postal Service. Our regular guest and contributor, Dr. Rick Geddes from Cornell University, has again been so generous with his time. Professor, thank you so much. This is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helby.